Welcome back. And our first question, does Romans 1.20 mean sola scriptura is not the only way uh, to know God or experience God? Romans 1.20, that God's divine nature and, and, uh, is seen in what he has made so the men are without excuse. Uh, I've heard your view on sola scriptura, and I agree. One reason uh, being some are saved who have never heard of Jesus. That's Romans 2, starting um, verse 12. Um, those who have not heard the law, but do by nature the things contained in the law, are law unto themselves. Uh, or... Um, existed um, before the Bible was written. I believe that God will give every person an opportunity to come to him. Yes, so that is correct. Sola Scriptura, even used by a Luther, uh, really just simply meant um, Scripture without um, uh, church traditions or fables is what he was trying to do, separating the, the Scripture. But he actually had other solas, sola fida, which means by faith alone. And uh, so it was It was not a, a, an indication. It's been used, I think, by many Protestants since, since Luther's time to uh, isolate Scripture from the two other threads of evidence the Bible tells us to use. And the Bible tells us to use Scripture. It's, it's profitable for, for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. But God's divine nature seen in what he has made, and so it needs to be harmonized with science and nature. It's God reveals himself. And taste and see that the Lord is good. Experience me. Your real-life experiences, all three have to harmonize. And that's why we teach the integrative evidence-based approach. Uh, second quarter, 2022, lesson 12, in relation to the investigative judgment, bridegroom and New Jerusalem, I have reviewed your notes multiple times. It is the most clarity I've ever heard on this topic. It is like a ribbon on a gift. Thank you so much. Do you have or when are you uh, uh, creating a brochure on this topic? Yes, actually, I've already written. Uh, there was a blog that went up this Thursday um, that was a short blog on it, but I've written a longer document on the bride, um, uh, the New Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, cleansing the bride, which is also the cleansing of the sanctuary, the same event. Written a longer document. It's at the editor. I'm supposed to get it back from the editor, I think, Monday or Tuesday. Once I get it back from editing, then we're going to send it for layout. We're going to make a new sharing magazine on this, and we're going to come at the, um, the um, cleansing of the sanctuary or investigative judgment. We have our investigative judgment one that is targeting primarily Adventists with lots of Ellen White in it and comes at it from the historical legal and showing you what it really means and deconstructing that. This is going to be um, for all Christians because we're not going to come at it through Daniel 8.14. We're going to come at it through the cleansing of the bride and the New Jerusalem and the feast days and showing the progression of the, and that the day of atonement, antitypical day of atonement, was the cleansing of the church preparing to meet Christ face to face. And so we're going to come through it that way. So that, that'll be coming out here in the next next uh, few months as we get that done, along with our Beasts of Revelation document that's already at the designer layout. And this is going to be very exciting. I'm really excited about that one. It'll blow your mind when you read that one. I'm going to promise you. It's going to, it's going to blow your mind. There's at least 19 new pers- points or, or truths that have, have really not been presented before in our materials. And, and just uh, we're going to just do three three beasts: the, the two beasts of Revelation thirteen and the beast of Revelation seventeen. All right. Uh, good morning, Doctor Jennings. Can you give some tips on helping a divorced woman move from thinking like a spouse to thinking like a divorced person? You know, this is actually a very good question, and it's not just divorced; it could be a widowed person uh, thinking this way. And uh, one of the things, and I talk to my patients about this all the time. Uh, is that when you go through divorce or a loss of a spouse, not only are you grieving the loss, but there's a change in identity, depending on how long you've been in the relationship. Um, I am a husband. I am a wife. I am a spouse. Now I am not only have the person to grieve, I liked being a husband. I liked being a wife. I'm not a wife or husband anymore. So there's a loss of role. 
a loss of, of identity, so to speak, of self. Uh, and so that, that requires working through. And it's a grieving issue. So the tip would be, as you're grieving the loss of the, the spouse, you also give yourself permission to grieve the loss of an identity role that uh, was important to you. Sometimes you see this same dynamic in, in people at retirement. They ha- identify as whatever their career was, and then they grieve their, their retirement. It's, it's, I don't feel useful anymore, and so forth. And it requires a reflection as you feel some of the discomfort to reprocess and then recognize that you have your own unique identity and individuality that has the opportunity to now flourish in some way that maybe it didn't flourish fully in the, the relationship that ended in divorce and see where God would lead you. So, uh, What is the abomination of desolation? Uh, my personal view, I'm going to give you the very short answer, it's the abomination of lies that have infected the church that desolate the soul. That's it. The abomination of lies, which are really imperial law, making God out to be a punitive authoritarian dictator that we live in fear of and recreate doctrines that hide us from him and thus prevent him from actually healing our hearts and our souls become desolate. And that's what I think the abomination of desolation is. Maybe you've covered this before, but based on the following quote, it sounds like we're responsible for someone who isn't saved. And this is a quote out of Gospel Workers, page 207. Quote, uh, if they should die in their sins, unwarned, their blood would be required at the hands of the watchman who failed to give them warning, unquote. Why wouldn't God appear in a dream or some other means to warn or reach a person if he knew they would accept him? He does this for some. It doesn't seem fair to a person if they are lost because of me not sharing with, uh, sharing with or giving them a warning. Would, won't I also uh, be lost um, if I'm responsible for them not being in heaven? So go back and read the larger context. The larger context here are really describing people you have a, a relationship with of some kind. You're a teacher of a student. You, know, you have a, somebody, it's a, a friend of yours, somebody you have a connection with, and you recognize that they are in a circumstance or situation that is contrary to God's will, and you don't speak to them about it. You allow them to continue on, and, and maybe your behavior even suggests that it's okay, that there's not a problem. Um, then this is what it's talking about. But we have a responsibility to be light bearers, basically. But we are not responsible for other people's repentance or other people's salvation in any way. And so what does it mean, then? The uh, blood would be required at the hands of the watchman. Blood would be required, required, blood required at the hands of the watchman. This is, this is, uh, this is symbolic language. This is not literal. You're not going to uh, say, okay, uh, you need uh, uh, 18 pints of blood for this person who, who didn't make it to heaven. I, I, need a, I, need a, I need 18 pints of blood in the vat over here um, for you. No, that's not literal. So what's it speaking about? It's, I, think, I, think what it's gonna, I think what it means is the hands of the watchman is that when we get to heaven and we have full awareness, and we have some recollection and awareness of a person that we cared about that's not there that we negligently didn't ever witness to, that we will feel that loss. We will pay that price in our heart as we grieve that person not being there. I think that's what it means, personally. We're not going to be found guilty. We're not going to be punished. It's where reality works. Doesn't she elsewhere say that we shouldn't take that on ourselves unless we'd be willing to die for that person? That's exactly right. She actually says that you have to have that love in your heart for these people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's why it will be then back on your, your, your heart in the hereafter because you actually love them here 
but you chose not to speak to them about something that you had awareness of. Okay. All right, next, next uh, says, I am sure that you are aware that most foods sold to us at the grocery store or in restaurants contain ingredients that are incredibly unhealthy for us, and some say that our diets can affect our moods and behaviors and our ability to make decisions. So I'm going to pause right there and say our food absolutely affects brain function. There's no question about it. Uh, it can affect moods. People who eat a fast food, junk food diet have a 40 to 50% higher rate of depression than people who eat a, a less junk food and less fast food, and that's dose-dependent. The more fast food and junk food you eat, the higher your risk of depression are. That's just a simple example. Attention, concentration, um, uh, prefrontal cortex functions also affected. Uh, eating a big old dose of sugar will cause uh, transient um, uh, memory and attention problems where you don't remember and you can't learn as well because you're kind of in a little bit of a foggy kind of state for a little while is that and we can see the dysfunction in the in the hippocampal circuits of the brain which are where new memories are registered for a brief period of time with a high sugar load so yes brain brain function can be affected by the foods that we eat and i could go on and on but i won't okay uh if this is true do people with unhealthy diets still have accountability for how they treat others or how they make decisions or do we just blame it on the foods that they are eating and say they can't help it. The old Twinkie defense. Is anybody old enough to remember the Twinkie defense? I am. 1978. I remember a guy murdered two people in Los Angeles, and his lawyers uh, argued that it was because he was eating, uh, was, it was overworked and eating a lot of f- junk food and fast foods, and thus he ended up in a state of uh, clinical depression. He couldn't make uh, uh, clear decisions anymore, and, uh, and it was labeled by the media the Twinkie defense, eating a lot of Twinkies. <laughs> okay. And uh, and uh, so anyway, um, irrespective of his diet, uh, in that particular case, he was actually found to have a mental illness that diminished his capacity, and and he was found only guilty of involuntary manslaughter rather than first degree murder. So uh, I just wanted to tell you that. So, uh, but in my view, no, um, that that your food choices do not give you. Um, um, you, uh, exoneration for the choices you make in life. You're still morally accountable for your decision-making, regardless of your food choices. And uh, Ellen White would make the hard case, the hard case, not the soft case, that you're morally accountable for your food choices. Yeah. Okay? And maybe this is why she makes the hard case. Uh, just like, uh, just like you could take the food choice, substitute with alcohol. Um, we've heard it said that when people drink a lot of alcohol, their brain function becomes impaired and their judgments can be impaired and they can make bad decisions. Uh, therefore, if people are highly intoxicated on alcohol and drugs, are they morally not responsible for the crimes that they commit during that time? It's the same argument. No, you're completely responsible. Even if your judgment's impaired by the substance because you chose to take the substance. So, same, same principle. So there's a person here who asks a long, long question about the New Jerusalem, the Bride of Christ. Uh, I would tell you to um, uh, go to lesson, for their particular question, go to lesson 12, last quarter, Hebrews. I actually read the quote that you've quoted here, and I address it in class. Why did in Acts 7.12, this is the where uh, um, Eutychus, Eutychus falls out of a window and dies, Okay, uh, listening to Paul all night. Uh, and so, and, and the question is, why did Paul throw himself so dramatically physically on the deceased body uh, to resurrect him, is the question in Acts 20. I have no idea why. I do know that that was not an uncommon thing. If you look, if you look in the old, if you look in the Old Testament, 
Elijah did the same thing, laid eye to eye, nose to nose, mouth to mouth, and so did Elisha. Both of these prophets, when they resurrected dead people, laid on top of them, eye to eye, face to face, mouth to mouth. Maybe they're doing mouth to mouth resuscitation. I don't know. Um, but that is how, that is how these prophets' apostle did it. Jesus, however, just spoke to the little girl, okay, um, to Lazarus in the tomb, just had come forth. So Jesus didn't go through the dramatics. So I, I don't know why, uh, and I've never read anything that would indicate a reason why. Uh, is Jesus one of the covering cherubs? Uh, and so that, that's an interesting question, and I think that I think Jesus is, uh, can be depicted uh, taking that role prior to his incarnation. And, and we can get that through Scripture, and I will run through that um, very quickly here. Um, I can find where I put my notes on that. Yeah, so we, we look into Exodus chapter 3. It says, The angel of the Lord appeared to uh, Moses in the flames from within the bush. When the, Lord saw, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, take off your shoes. I am the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac. And, but who's the God? The angel of the Lord is the one who's within the bush. Okay, then, and there's several others that describe that. Uh, same thing in the Old Testament, so I'm going to skip. And then uh, Jesus said in John 5, 28, I tell you the truth, the time is coming and now has come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear his voice will live. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in the graves in the graves will hear his voice, the voice of the Son of God, okay, and come out. So whose voice is it that raised the dead? Jesus' voice, 1 Thessalonians 4.16. For the Lord himself will come down out of heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. So there we go again. The voice here is Christ and that voice is the archangel and that angel is uh, the is God as described in... in uh, uh, and then it says in Jude, um, but even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil uh, about the body of Moses, is not there to bring access. So there, now we know which archangel, which archangel it is that raises the dead. It's Michael. And that Michael is Jesus because his voice raises the dead. And so I think it's a very nice, tight, biblical, biblical connection to show that. And then you can show that in 1 Peter 1.19, um, where Jesus is referred to as the bright and morning star, in the Greek New Testament, that word is phosphorus, which in the Latin Vulgate New Testament is translated Lucifer which means light bearer, phosphorus or phosphorus, bright burning metal, okay? Uh, Lucifer, light bearer. Jesus is the light which lightens all men. And so we put all these pieces together, and prior to um, Lucifer's fall, um, God, who it says in 1 Timothy 6.16, lived in unapproachable light, unapproachable light, because he's an infinite being, and finite beings cannot enter into infinity and survive. So God, who is love, wants close intimacy with his creation, a member of the Godhead leaves infinity and enters linear existence. That member, the go-between, the bridge builder, has always been Jesus, and Jesus leaves and he comes in the form of an angel. But he is not an angel, he is God. And Lucifer is a created being, is elevated almost, but not totally, to equality. And thus, Jesus operates in the presence of God, and Lucifer operates in the presence of God, and I think they're depicted on the, he- on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, and, uh, and I think that's what you have going on there. And then Lucifer becomes jealous, and the whole great controversy be- uh, begins, and so forth and so on. So I think, yes, you can make the case that Jesus prior is in Christ, but not anymore. Now he's in human form, and he's in human form for all eternity. What is your opinion of the emotional freedom tapping technique? 
Uh, I'm not really that familiar with this. In fact, I, this post was posted last night and I looked it up. Um, and this person says, I'm being told it's pagan and of the devil. Uh, well, I will tell you, if you, first thing, if you believe it's pagan and of the devil, regardless of whether it is pagan and of the devil, if you believe it is, you shouldn't do it. <laughs> this is, that, that would go to the principles of Romans 14. If you believe this food has been offered to idols, then you shouldn't eat that food because you will have a guilty conscience and you will live in fear of somehow giving your soul to the devil. So if you believe this is of the devil, don't participate in it because you'll just feel guilt, fear, and anxiety over it. Uh, I haven't seen anything. What I read about it is simply a form of therapy, and it's actually self-relaxation that teaches you how to just tap uh, and and calm yourself when you're anxious and modulate your emotions. Uh, I think there's some neurobiological and other physiological reasons why this could be beneficial. Uh, I don't. I didn't see anything directly um, demonic in, in what I saw described, but I didn't do an in-depth, deep dive on this. So, as opposed to cutting oneself. Yeah, as opposed to cutting oneself when you're stressed. Yeah. Stimulus that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I almost feel like apologizing for these questions that I'm about to ask. Uh, I feel like uh, they've probably been covered over the years, but I asked them because outside uh, in other countries, many Adventist congregations in other countries, they have different cultures and views of the Bible, uh, and, the, and they're often driven by human law. I would like to hear uh, the design law perspective on these two questions. Um, let's see. Uh, let's see yeah. One, uh, is it okay to have sex with your spouse during Sabbath hours? Why or why not? Some lifelong Adventists in these churches and other countries have claimed that keeping the Sabbath is thinking about God, and that when you are uh, in the sex act, your mind is on anything but God, and therefore you are breaking the Sabbath. <laughs> I just have to laugh at these questions. But you know, the on how first off, and I don't mean to be critical. I'm sure this persons that are doing this are quite sincere, and 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 I have to and I have to discipline and chastise myself now because I I acted somewhat dismissive of this question and I'm, I'm sure the people that do this are being quite sincere and they want to be good little children for the lord and that's exactly what it is it's very childish this is childish thinking on rules on the do's and don'ts that don't really understand reality at all because what is the again the uh the, what, what what did we just talk about at the end of class about what atonement is it's oneness it's unity it is a covenant of love and what did god design adam and eve to experience an intimacy, a covenant of love, okay? And so uh, this, uh, understand that this doctrine, this idea about the Sabbath, I'm going to tell you straight up. Now, your, 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 your Adventist people who believe this won't be able to process what I'm going to tell you, but I'm going to tell you the straight truth. This is satanic. This comes from the evil one. Why? There were two gifts given to humanity in Eden that came out of Eden with us. Marital relationships with include marital intimacy and the Sabbath. And this is a setup to use one of God's gifts to undermine the other one of God's gifts. This is not how God works. Jim, when my mother and father were uh, becoming Adventists, the one who came and taught them about Adventists were taught that very thing. Not what you said, but the question. Further, God created sex between a husband and wife to be a beautiful consummation of other-centered love, giving in service. It is a godlike experience and process. It teaches us something about the Godhead to participate in it in the way God designed it. Satan wants to destroy that intimacy. 
He wants us to have fear, fear of God, fear of breaking a rule. He wants to destroy the, and think about the tension that could happen in a family if, if one spouse wants to have intimacy with the husband, uh, or, or, or the, or the wife, either way. Uh, and, and, and the other spouse wants to obey the Sabbath and, and then all of a sudden there's an argument and there's tension, uh, and, and we have conflict in the home and, and then the person leaves with their feelings or not. I didn't mean, please forgive me for being such a wicked sodomite. <laughs> I mean, you could see where this leads. This is so corrosive. This is not how God works. He's not a rule keeper, a list keeper. The, the principles of love are to uplift and benefit each other and glorify God in what we do. So the Sabbath and the, and the marital intimacy and marriage relation were given by God, and they should be celebrated uh, seven days a week. You remember the Sabbath all week long. And also, God created Adam and Eve on Friday yeah, what? Yeah. to bring the Sabbath in together. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Yep. Mm-hmm. Here you go. I'm sure a healthy Adam didn't look at Eve and go anything but wow. We need to, we need to guard the edges. Yeah. All right. Uh, and the next question was: Are death threats from your spouse grounds for divorce? What exactly does the word uh, sexual immorality or adultery mean when Jesus speaks about this in Matthew 5 and and 19? Uh, Many hold the strong belief that infidelity is only on the grounds of uh, 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 sexual infidelity, the only grounds for for a divorce. Well, those same people, you're dealing with children. You're dealing with rule keepers. It is not what uh, divorce means um, or what adultery means. So what is the first and greatest of all the commandments? No. Okay. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor. So, where does a spouse fall? God or neighbor category? Neighbor. Closest neighbor. That's right. Your duty is to God first. So, in a relationship in which your fitness for God's cause is being undermined constantly, you have a duty to sever that relationship if it can't be reconciled and healed. Understand God hates divorce. That's what the Bible says. Why does he hate divorce? Because divorce happens when love breaks down. And so the metaphor I use would be, doctors hate amputating limbs. Well, why do they amputate limbs? When the circulation breaks down and things become gangrenous. Therefore, God gave them the writ of divorcement when their hearts, because their hearts were hardened, hardening of the arteries, blood doesn't circulate, things die, hardening of the heart, love doesn't circulate, people's characters, hearts, souls die. So if you're hard, if you're married to a hard-hearted person who is domineering and abusive, and they, you can't do bypass surgery to give them a new heart and right spirit, so love flows again and heal the relationship, which is the ideal, if that is not an option, if that's not going to work, if you tried that and it doesn't happen, then you have the God-given responsibility to sever that unhealthy tie for the same reason you amputate a leg. If you don't, it, dis- it, it destroys the whole system. It, per- it kills the person. And many spouses are in Christian relationships that are abusive and exploitive, and both souls are being destroyed in the process. And so that's my view of that. So what is adultery? By the way, adultery um, is betrayal. And betrayal can happen on a physical level. But when you sit up, and I would say anybody who whoever asked this question, uh, you can go to your Bible study class and ask them. When you stood up before God and witnesses and, and married your partner, uh, c- um, committing yourself to love, honor, and cherish, forsaking all others until death do you part, were you only 
committing your genitals to one another. Now, that's, you may laugh at the question and think it's a little uh, provocative, but the reality is, if that's the only place you can break the covenant, that's all you've really committed to the covenant. No, we commit ourselves to the covenant, to love, honor, and cherish. Okay? I give you myself to become united with, and you give me yourself to become united with. Okay? And therefore, my heart is in your hands, and your heart is in my hands, and adultery is betraying that love trust. That's what it is. Not making mistakes, not stumbling and falling, not, uh, not having an irritable moment and spouting off and saying something you regret that you repent of and ask forgiveness for. That's not, that's not, be- it's betrayal. Threatening to murder your spouse? Seriously? That's betrayal. That's adultery. And that's why the Bible says you break the law on one point, you break it in all points. All right. Um, one of my, this person wrote, one of my favorite definitions of submit is to submit a proposal. As I, so, uh, as to submit an idea. In the construction industry, a proposal is submitted before construction can begin. What are your thoughts? Well, that's, that's, I think you pointed out one of the difficulties with language. A word can have more than one meaning. Uh, the word rendition. You can have two different renditions of a play. Two different renditions of a song. You can also have some CIA operators put a black bag over somebody's head, drop them, and yank them off of the street, put them in a hole somewhere, and put them through uh, enhanced interrogation, which is called rendition. Those are not the same thing. And neither is the submit. The submit that we spoke about in the quote that I read, the sullen submission, was not about the sullen handing in of a proposal. It was about surrendering and complying. And that's a legitimate... But your, your definition here is also a legitimate definition of the word. It just means something completely different. And so that's where the context will tell you what the word means. So we have to be careful. They said, today you've read a beautiful marriage covenant definition. Where did you quote it from? Uh, from the new blah, uh, the new magazine we have in editing that will be coming out on the... Um, New Jerusalem, the Bride of Christ, which will be, it, it will be in there. You can also, if you want to get that little section of it early, it's in my notes for today. And so you can get it from my notes today, um, when they're posted with today's lesson. Uh, today you read, yeah, that's the same thing. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Tim, again, for the Bible study. I have a non-related Bible study question. What is your opinion about 90 minerals that we need to supplement every day? Uh, I've never heard a, a number of 90 minerals we need to supplement every day. So I, I would say that that number does not sound right to me. I've never heard a number of 90 mineral, minerals we supplement every day. And, and most of the minerals, um, most of us, if we eat a reasonably healthy diet, will get. But there may be some trace minerals. Um, and I get I, the minerals that, that are particularly like selenium. Um, selenium I get through Brazil seed, uh, Brazil nuts. Yeah. Yep, and uh, so so there are, there are foods you can get most of your, your minerals in. Iron, you get in green leafy vegetables and so forth. So a healthy diet provides most of these. I don't, I don't think most people need to take a supplement of these. I think during certain times you might supplement, like uh, during the concerns related to viral infection transmission, supplementing with a zinc, quercetin supplement can help reduce and provide your body with zinc, which uses to fight against infections, and there's data to support that. But I don't know of any 90. 
It says, explain Isaiah 58, where it says, keeping the Sabbath, we are uh, not thinking our own thoughts, uh, seeking your own pleasure. No, it actually doesn't say you're thinking your own thoughts. It says that you're not keeping the Sabbath unless you call it a delight. And because you're not doing your own will or doing your own, 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 own agenda. And so the, the point being here is you're not being selfish on the Sabbath that you're actually loving God and others. But, but here's the beauty. I love the Isaiah 58. You use it all the time when it comes to Sabbath keeping. Uh, and this goes back to what we so- so- talked about in class today. The difference between the obedience of law versus the obedience of love and trust. Can you, as a parent, put pressure on your child and get obedience to make them eat their spinach? Yes. Most of the time you can. Most of the time you can. Can you make them enjoy it? <laughs> You will eat your spinach, and you will enjoy it. Okay? The point being is, the obedience of law is the sullen submission. The sullen submission. And you make your kid eat something they don't like over and over again. You breed the character of a loving, trusting child or a rebel. I hate you, and I hate meals with you, and I never want to eat with you again. I'm going to go eat by myself. Okay, isn't that what happens? Yes. Sullen submission, when you get a chance, you rebel. It's smothered under fear of retaliation until there's opportunity to rebel. This is, but, but Isaiah 58 talks about Sabbath keeping as a delight. And when people really do enjoy spinach, oh, I love spinach. Thank you. Oh, I'm so glad we're having this. Oh, I love the Sabbath. I'm so glad it's come around again. Okay? That's the obedience of love and trust. And you can't get there through rule keeping or imposed law or threats of punishment. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love, for the truths you've revealed to us, for the way you run your universe in liberty and freedom, and we pray that you will enlighten our minds and help us grow out of the childishness and the darkness and the imperialism that has just infected this entire world, that we can be bright lights for your kingdom at this time in history, and we can see you coming soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.